Being from the South, I know a thing or two about how bugs can ruin a great outdoor experience. It's crazy how something so small can affect some of the potentially greatest experiences of your life. And that's why today's show is brought to you in part by Sawyer. You might know them as the water filter company. I actually have a couple Sawyer filters, but they make a lot of other great products too, including their insect repellent. And uh, j just some points about what it is. It's great for the whole family. It's actually safe to use on infants and those who are pregnant because they don't use DEET, the active ingredient. They use something better called picaridin. It actually lasts longer. It lasts up to 12 hours. Pretty incredible. And it doesn't damage any of your gear. So it's insect repellent specifically made for families who are also outdoorsy because it won't ruin any of that high dollar gear that you've bought to be out there. And it does a fantastic job of protecting you and your family from those vector-borne illnesses that are carried by insects. I know for me, I'm always carrying some insect repellent because I've had mosquitoes specifically ruin some pretty incredible backpacking experiences. Don't let it happen to you. Use Sawyer's 20% Picaridin insect repellents. Find out more about that at sawyer.com. Play safe, travel safely, Sawyer. They keep you outdoors. How are you going to tell somebody, like, just to, as you're talking to them in a coffee shop or whatever, hey, you know what you really need to do? You need to put a 50-pound pack on. You need to sweat bullets. And you need to be so hungry you can hardly see straight. And then you need to not be angry enough at your fellow compadres who just turned you down the wrong trail. And now you're going to take another two hours before you eat. And that's going to be one of the best things that's ever happened to you. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, where we hear stories of adventure from every corner of the planet. We interview all sorts of folks who are using their sport to explore the world around them and give you the inspiration you need to get out there and have some fun. Hey folks, today's episode is actually a throwback Thursday episode like we do every Thursday with Kurt Linville, who was hosting the show at the time, and he's talking to Tom Smith, who's just a great storyteller here today to talk about the life-changing aspect of adventures, and specifically with mountaineering and travel. Tom is the executive director of Summit Adventure. Uh, you can find out more about them at summitadventure.com. So I hope you enjoy. I hope you learned something. And I actually haven't even heard this episode. I just really liked that intro that Tom was talking about, putting on a 50-pound pack, going out there, being miserable out in the wilderness, and, and, and telling people it's going to be the best experience of their life. And anyone that's been on, on an adventure knows that it's true. So I'm hoping to learn something else myself. All right, here is the episode, and we'll be coming at you with a brand new episode on Monday. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. Today I have Tom Smith with us. And Tom is the executive director of an organization known as Summit Adventure. And Summit Adventure is, is pretty darn cool. It allows people to get college credit for spending time interacting in the woods. We're going to talk a lot more about that. But Tom grew up, I guess, falling in love with adventure sports and his uh, his biggest passion, he says, is snow skiing, and he does tele-skiing and cross-country skiing. He also does a lot of alpine climbing. He does some backpacking, and he also races mountain bikes. So Tom just really plugged into adventure sports, and now he has a career 
with Summit Adventure that allows him to continue that passion while he works with others to help them with their passion. So, Tom, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you very much. It's good to be here. So, Tom, tell us first about yourself. Uh, where'd you grow up? How did you get started in adventure sports? Yeah, I grew up in a, a frosty little place called Minnesota. And um, as I had a biology teacher in uh, late junior high who said, hey, do you want to go on a canoe trip? And um, if you know anything about uh, Minnesota, there's, I don't know, thirteen to 18,000 lakes or something like that there. And uh, so canoeing is a primary form of recreation. And so I thought a canoe trip would be sort of fun. So I went on a two-week canoe trip and uh, endured the bugs and uh, uh, the heat and the humidity and all the sort of stuff that went in that direction, sort of the, the tough parts about it. And, uh, and I also got to hear the loons and sleep on beautiful islands and uh, travel through incredibly um, spectacular scenery. And uh, I fell in love with that. So that was in, that was in about eighth grade, I think. Um, and then this same teacher, when I got into high school, asked if I want to go winter camping. So we were snowshoeing. We carried our stuff. I think it was a special camp. I can't even remember. It was so long ago. But I remember that we were supposed to be out for five days. And um, I really enjoyed that. I, I was a hockey player and I had been, I spent most of my days outside in the cold. And so being cold didn't bother me in the least. And uh, the snow was excellent. And um, I loved this, uh, this teacher that uh, had spent so much time with me. And that was probably part of the, part of the draw as well. Um, and I remember on this trip that we, there was a girl that was going along and she was very tr- timid. And uh, one, probably the third night in, she wasn't taking care of herself very, very well. And this is probably 35 years ago or something like that, maybe even longer. And, uh, she, we didn't have maybe the best clothing, and um, she woke up in the middle of the night shivering so badly that, uh, that the, the teacher that I was with and another supervisor decided that she was hypothermic, and we all had to get up, and we had to sort of undo camp and, and get out of there. Wow. And that was, that was an epic uh, event uh, for a young kid to be up at 2 in the, in the morning, I guess, and um, with people being pretty serious about trying to get somebody evacuated and getting out of there. And I, I remember that it happened uh, um, at a time in my life where, you know, I'm looking for adventure and, um, and I, I found it in the snow. So I think that uh, that event and that, that winter camping trip helped solidify um, the love for not, not only the outdoors, because I think I developed a deeper love for the outdoors later on, but it definitely helped um, a kid who was looking for adventure, probably like all uh, high school kids, find it in a, in a way that was uh, pretty productive. You know, I think it's really cool that you got to experience that stuff as a, as a kid and as a teen. I think that reaching out to kids and introducing them to nature and adventure, I think it's really important. I think that this generation needs it more now than ever. So cool that you got it. Yeah, which is interesting because my parents, uh, my dad was in the army, and I think he must have done a little winter camping. He was stationed in Alaska, and he was a, a hockey player, and uh, so that's why he was up there. But uh, he hated um, camping and anything that had to do with that, and we we managed to talk him into camping as a family. And um, he borrowed somebody's canvas tent, if you recall those things. That every oh, time yeah. you touch the canvas, they would start leaking there, and. As luck would have it, uh, that one weekend we talked our dad into going out. It was um, a storm so bad that I remember in the middle of the night on Saturday night, we got a we had a tornado come across the top of the tent. And if you know anything about tornadoes, it sounds like a loud train. <laughs> and so I remember my dad being up all night plugging the holes from the canvas uh, leaking every time 
uh, his kids in sheer fright ran into the side of the tent or touched it or whatever. So it was, it was, uh, our one time camping as a family and we <laughs> never did it again. So the fact that I do it for a living now, I think, um, greatly perplexed the rest of my family. <laughs> well, you can kind of understand why he may not like camping so much if that was his only context for it. Huh? <laughs> yeah, I think he was just praying that he was glad that we were alive after it was over. And, you know, when you're a kid, you don't really think a, a tornado going over the top of a tent is really that dangerous. But uh, apparently it was. <laughs> I have been in situations in group camping where uh, tornadoes came through and dome tents were flying 50, 60 feet in the air. Just oh. <laughs> So I've seen it. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's not good. No, not good at all. So when you got older, you mentioned that you did some through hiking. Yeah, I start. I I had a I had sort of a lapse in college. I um I, I stopped doing some of the outdoor stuff because uh, there was a lot of distractions for me in college, and uh, you know some uh, growing up that I had to do, and a whole bunch of other things, and and um. So I got back into the outdoor thing after I got out of college. So I had like a four-year hiatus from that. And uh, and I read a book um, called uh, Walk Across America, which back in 1975 was a bestseller. And it was about a kid in New York. And after the Vietnam War, he decided he wanted to see what America was really like. And so he put a backpack on. He walked across the country. Well, that I thought that was about the coolest thing I'd ever heard. So he, this guy that wrote this book originally thought he was going to hike the Appalachian Trail. And so I just thought, well, I'll just do that. And um, I, I was about as unprepared for that as I was for uh, pretty much everything else in my life up to that point. Um, I'm not exactly the clearest preparer. And uh, I remember I weighed my pack to start down the Appalachian Trail from Maine to Georgia, which if anyone knows the Appalachian Trail, that's the wrong way to go. Yeah, that's backwards, um, but some yeah, people do it. Backwards. And then uh, I got, I, I weighed my pack when I got to Maine and it weighed 87 pounds. Oh, man. And, uh, and so I remember a after a week or two of trying to trudge under that thing and, and pretty much dying that I, I pulled, I was pulling out things. I thought, you know, I just don't think I need this. And I pulled out three pairs of Levi's and uh, some other paraphernalia. But I remember the Levi's for some reason I thought when I was back in Minnesota packing up that clearly if you're backpacking, you're going to have three pairs of pants. <laughs> And Levi's, if you if you ever hefted those bad boys, they they aren't exactly ultralight material, so that, they probably accounted for twenty five pounds alone, just the three. <laughs> so anyway, so I managed to uh, sort of skate my way down um, different parts of the trail. I had uh, I had you know beginneritis and blisters and tendon problems and all kinds of stuff. I mean, imagine carrying an eighty seven pound pack. I, I wasn't the brightest thing on the on the trail. And so, but I stayed, I was out for a long period of time and I was away from, um, society and, uh, I had graduated from college and, uh, I, I, thankfully I didn't have any loans to, that I had to worry about. And so, so all that was really good and I, I just loved being out. And so the only thing I really think of is, uh, this isn't going the way I want it to. And so maybe what I'll do is I'll re try to recover over the winter and I'll come back out again next summer. So that's what I did. I went back home and uh, I don't even remember the job I took. Uh, probably had something to do with McDonald's or something. And um, and then I just tried to save as much money and I went back out the next summer and and was much more prepared. And, uh, and it was even better. And I remember having stellar experiences all the way from uh, Georgia all the way up into Virginia that, uh, that I still remember today that were really powerful with other people hiking and some of the things that I saw and some of the animals and just being out in nature was spectacular. Well, you know, I, I really believe in the power of nature to 
it, it gives people a new perspective and makes them reflect on on their lives. And I, I think that when you go spend serious time in nature, you always come out changed somehow, right? Yeah. And I think Absolutely. that that's what you're alluding to. And I'm assuming here, but Summit Adventure is all about that. So is that what led you into Summit Adventure? Well, I think somewhere – so when I came back from the Appalachian Trail the second time, I, I wasn't sure what to do. And somewhere along the way, I, I talked to someone who was an Outward Bound instructor uh, in, the, in northern Minnesota at the Voyager School. And I, I think I almost had an aneurysm when I found out that this guy was getting paid to be out in the wilderness. And right. uh, so I thought, my gosh, I, I, I'm pretty sure I'd never heard of that before. Like the idea of people guiding in mountains or, or on can, in canoes or any of that sort of stuff. It, I guess I just never either listened when someone was talking about it or, or no one ever talked about it around me. So, um, so I decided to pursue that heavily. I thought this is what I've got to do. It's, it's where I found the most peace in my life. Um, it did, uh, the, my time on the Appalachian Trail had made a lot of transformative um, uh, things in my mind. And so uh, I went after the whole Outward Bound instructing. And uh, I did that for, uh, with Outward Bound for the next five years. I'm trying to remember back when, at my age, it's hard, sort of hard to remember all the years. But, but I did it for a, a period of time, three or five years. And, um, and then I found out about Summit Adventure uh, because a friend of ours was talking about how uh, this place, Summit Adventure, was exactly like Outward Bound, only it had a, a faith dimension to it as well. And that had, over the years, had become increasingly important to me. Um, and maybe part of that was because I was spending so much time out in the wilderness. And I think a lot of times when we get out in the wilderness, um, there's some some awareness of God that is hard to capture when you're walking around in the cities. Mm. At, least that's, at least that's what it was for me. So... So yeah, so Summit Adventure was a was a, a place where that was incorporated into into an outward bound philosophy, and I, I really bought hard and still believe hard into the outward bound philosophy that uh, that we need challenge to uh, to move us out of our comfort zones and to, to do things that we didn't think we could do. And I think that the, the most Americans could probably benefit, myself included, from a continual application of that sort of process. So so adding a, adding a, a faith component into there, I was like, wow, this is this is really awesome. And it turned out I went, we, both my wife and I went out and worked at Summit Adventure and, and it was really awesome and still is awesome. Well, let's, let's rewind a little bit here. Let's say that someone stumbles into this podcast and they're, they're like adventure sports. What are we talking about? Mm -hmm. You know, and here's your, here's your five minutes, your three minutes, however long it takes. Tell them why adventure sports matter. Why should they consider getting involved? Yeah, uh, the, and the adventure sports that, as at least as I think we're talking about it here, is not just going out and rock climbing, but thinking, uh, but adding rock climbing into your life in a way that you wonder if being afraid on the side of a cliff or the climbing of a Mount Rainier, let's say that uh, you always wanted to do and you finally get there, but it was probably the hardest thing you ever did, and you you fell a couple times on the snow and you were collapsing because you were so tired. If that's if that's sort of the adventure sports that we're talking here, talking about here, then I would say uh, most Americans that I know, including myself, spend 
uh, a ridiculous amount of time trying to get our lives, trying to get their lives, however you want to say that, um, more comfortable. And more comfortable oftentimes means um, safer, less risky, less adventurous. You know the outcomes uh, throughout every day. Uh, physically, the challenges um, are not that great, or if they are, they're highly controlled. There's not many variables. Those are the sorts of things that I um, work with in my own life. I, tr I try to pad the comfort zone so that it gets wider and wider. So in other words, I can spend more and more time in my comfort zone. Um, then, then there's part of me, though, because I do this for a living, where I'm like, do I, is that really the best thing for me? What, what happens when I am doing uh, things in my comfort zone. Well, what happens is I keep doing the same old things and, and I'm not challenged to be any different. And I think the, the idea of adventure sports, at least as we're describing them here, is they they have so many variables and so many outcomes that we can't control that you have to either depend on other people that you're with or you have to depend on yourself in a different way and maybe even you have to call out to, uh, to powers that uh, go above and beyond yourself and your friends. Mm. And so that... Those sorts of things are, I think, absolutely crucial and gaining more significance the, the longer we are in the society we have that it becomes increasingly more reliant on screens and just sitting down, sitting around and um, not doing a whole lot, whether that's physically or maybe even uh, interpersonally. Wow. You know, I, I couldn't agree more, first of all. And I think that in our modern age, adventure sports are becoming increasingly popular to a niche. But society as a whole, I think, is is growing farther and farther away from just the everyday adventures. I mean, seatbelts, airbags, you know, helmets on the bikes, and, and all these things are good. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, right. But we're more and more padded. We're more and more isolated from kind of the raw realities of life. Yeah. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Exactly. And... And um, so the the thing that appealed to me in high school, remember I'm going back now to that winter camping trip, and uh, I just guided a group on Rainier uh, a month ago and on Shasta just a couple weeks ago. Those, when you talk to people about 300 foot deep crevasses or 20 below zero temperatures and snow, most people um, shy away from that, and, and maybe there's maybe there's just part of a human condition. However, those things are they have a, a certain risk element to them, but frankly, they're risk elements that you could somehow prepare for or at, at some levels you can control a bit. You can, you know, for example, you can always just turn around, right, and you just can get out of there. Um, but that's a lot different than when you're speeding down a highway at 75 miles an hour and the, and the car's coming at you or texting. So oh. um, I, I don't know that um, I would rather be in that situation uh, very often, being down the highway where there, there is a risk, uh, but it's a very uncontrollable risk um, versus being in adventure sport scenarios where the average person probably thinks, oh, that's very risky and very dangerous. But the reality is it's probably far more uh, safe or less out of control than, than you'd think if you had somebody that was either taking you there or you, you knew, sort of knew what you were doing. Oh, yeah. No, I agree. And I think the, the problem-solving elements of it also, you know, you find yourself out in the wilderness somewhere, you're uncomfortable, you have something that has to be addressed, you have to figure out what to do with limited resources, you got to lean on, you know, your experience, your education, your knowledge, your, your limited amount of gear that you have at hand. I think yeah. it's fun. Yeah, and it's and I think if you take it in the context of a group setting, or let's say you and I are out together, that the reliance you got to put on each other is much greater than 
the reliance we had to put on each other if we're going to go show up at a coffee shop we're driving our, our new vehicles to the coffee shop separate and we just get there and we so there's not there's not that sense of uh intense camaraderie right the so it's probably some of the closest things these outdoor adventure sports um to what military people feel right and i think they've ramped it up through the roof because obviously their lives are on the line and that that i don't want to even remotely compare that other than to say um, a lot of folks that are in the military, they engage in adventure sports after they're done or, or as a sidebar because it, it comes sort of close, right? Like you got to rely on these people to, to belay you on a rope, to, to make sure they're helping you make the right decisions. And, um, if you guys, if people get in trouble because of weather or bad decisions or whatever, you got to help each other out. Yeah, that's cool. The sense of community that develops, you know, you, you can sit down right next to somebody and watch a movie in a theater. You're never even going to to know their name. Your your elbows might brush on the armrest, you know, but right, right. <laughs> that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about take that same person out in the woods and say, we're going to get through this together because together is what's required here. Exactly. Man, you get to know people. Yeah. And the thing is you get to, and, and people get a chance to be uh, somehow a little bit, um, they might be able to be unique. So there's a lot of people that, that grew up that weren't stellar athletes or they weren't the smartest kid in the class or, you know, they were just sort of a normal kid. And I think one of the things I've enjoyed over the 35 years I've been doing this um, as a professional is watching people like that that were just sort of normal or even mediocre uh, in, in other ways where they, they step into this outdoor setting and they somehow just shine. Like they become, they, they're somehow they're exceptionally good rock climbers right away or they've got a cool head when, when everyone else is firing off and yelling at each other or um, they just enjoy the, the challenge of carrying a backpack across terrain that they don't know where the trailhead that they should have been on is. And so in other words, they're sort of lost or, or whatever. So um, I think it also gives a chance for, uh, for people to escape mediocrity uh, and normalcy, which, uh, you know, it's hard to do in everyday life. Oh, yeah. You know, I can't resist telling a quick story here from last week. I yeah. mentioned to you, we just got back from a nine-day backpacking trip, and two of my sons came with me. And here's the thing. I had dreamed for almost 20 years about doing a through-hike through the Holy Cross Wilderness. Mm. And as I started looking at the maps and stuff, I'm going, oh, there aren't any trails here. Wow. And I, I called the, you know, the, 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 I guess the forest stranger. I said, so we're going to try to go from this valley to that valley, and I don't see a trail. I think that we could make this one saddle, though I'm not sure. Do you know of people who do this? And the ranger comes back and says, no, I've never heard of anyone doing that. <laughs> there is no trail. I don't know about that, you know. Wow. And the deal is we had about 30 miles of 13,000-foot peaks, and there were cliffs. They were the, the jagged, precipitous kind. We decided we weren't going to take ropes. We weren't going to go technical, but we still wanted to make it over a saddle. And on Google Earth, I found a saddle at 12,400 feet. It was cliffy at the top, but we thought we could sneak it. And we didn't know if we could get past that or not. And so we went into this thing saying, well, we're either going to make it over this saddle and finish our through hike or we're going to have to turn around and come out somewhere completely unplanned. And so for the three or four days leading up to what we called the crux of the trip, you know, that was always kind of a shadow hanging over us. And, you know, you get a little hyper over it. Yeah. We finally got up there. We got up really early so we could make the altitude. We've got heavy packs, you know, and we got 
up the cliffs through uh, heavy talus and screes and rock slides and all the stuff you would expect in that environment. But when we got to the top, there is uh, just this feeling of huge accomplishment. You know, yeah. and I looked at my 14-year-old son and I said, what do you think? He goes, wow, that makes me feel manly. <laughs> you know, That's awesome. And I was like, yeah, that's what we're here for, you know? Yeah, that's the essence of it, right? Is you get you get a chance also with the in those situations you get a chance to to perform, right? And it doesn't at that point um, it doesn't really matter if you're 14 or or 35. Some somebody's got to be able to get the job done, and um, it depends on doesn't necessarily depend on who's the strongest. You just got to be able to carry the pack that you had, and you got to get get the thing moving. So, yeah, it could be a real um, a real uh, character builder for. 14-year-olds, and for, I don't know, guys like me, 56. Sure, you bet. Well, it was an excellent time, and, and when we stood at the top of that, we got over the, the crux, and the next valley was green and beautiful and forgiving, <laughs> you know? Yeah. The contrast, we just felt like a huge sense of accomplishment, and that's, for me, that's what adventure sports is about. You know, it's it's challenging yourself, finding out what you're made of, coming out the other side of something, having having learned what you're capable of, learn something about yourself on the inside in the process. And uh, I think it matters. I think it's important. Well, and it's it not only matters, but, um, you know, they did a study, the Kaiser Foundation did a study two years ago, and they found that the average kid from ages 11 to 18 spends seven, a minimum of seven hours a day plugged in in front of a screen of some kind. Whoa. And that includes a phone and everything else. And they said it could go up as high as 11 hours if you consider that sometimes when they're on a screen, they're actually multitasking on several screens. So, you know, that's the, that's the average kid. In seven hours, if you take eight, you know, sort of do the rest of the math, that's leaving very little time to actually have reality, right? And maybe it's just my age, but it's a little hard to imagine how just being in front of a screen is that, that much real time. Mm. So, um, so you get out in the outdoors and there is a definite sense of consequence and there's definitely um, – a staggering difference from just being plugged in in front of a screen sitting in in, in a comfortable room somewhere. So I think that uh, I think our generation, um, my generation, has benefited from being in the outdoors and still sort of shakes our head at the generations that that came after that are getting increasingly plugged into screens. And that, frankly, sometimes I am too. So, um, but it seems to be the tendency of where we're going, and the tendency isn't um, the trend isn't that we're getting more outside; we're getting less outside, and that's uh, that's a little frightening for me. I think. Yeah, it is. It's disturbing, actually, because I believe that connecting with nature, being physically active, being out there and learning about yourself, I think it matters. I think it's, I think it's fundamental to what it means to be human. Yeah, I would, I would, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. And, and, but if you never had that experience, you, you're not going to there's, – there's nothing that you can check off on that that says, no, I don't agree with that. You just you don't even know. Right. So that's so that we're sort of going back to summit, and um, you know we do a lot of work with kids as well as adults, but um, it we also do courses with dads and their kids, and so that that sort of combines both, right? The dads of my generation and uh, um, with kids of of the fourteen year old variety that that you have, right? And I also have a ten year old as well. Um, so uh, yeah, it's it's a great mix then because the dads are looking for something for their kid, but along the way they go, oh, I I could use this too. I, mm. I could use to be out more. I, I could use to be away from work more. And uh, the guy that started Summit, his one of his favorite lines was he'd never met a dad who at the end of his life wished he had spent more time at the office. 
<laughs> yeah, for sure. So yeah. this is uh, www.summitadventure.com. Is that right? Correct. So if people want to learn more about that, I want to come back and talk more in depth about Summit Adventure and the programs you guys have going. But before we dive deep into that, if someone wants to get involved in adventure sports and they've never done it before, what's your advice? Um, yeah, it's uh, so there's a couple ways to go about it, right? So if you if you are looking uh, for just an experience, you could hire a and let's say you live in the mountains or you want to go experience the mountains, you want to climb Mount Rainier, for example, you could you could contact any number of uh, mountain guides and that would be an easy search, right? And and then say, talk to them about taking you up Rainier. So I just took uh, um, our summit with me along, took uh, five people up Mount Rainier that had never been there before uh, in at the end of June. So that's a, that's a common way to go. And, and if you were in the Minnesota and you wanted to go do a canoe trip, you could do that as well. So there's plenty of outfitters and guides that would take you. And, um, and, uh, if you talk to most guides, mountain guides that I know, they'll, they'll say that the reason why they do it year after year is because they, it brings them so much joy and satisfaction to bring other people out in the mountains to appreciate the, the, um, what they appreciate. And so that's great. And so though there's plenty of people that that's the, that's their existence is to be able to just get you out there. Now, if you take it one step, uh, I think this is fair to say, one step deeper, then you would be thinking about an outward bound course or potentially even a Knowles course or a summit adventure course where you're getting you're getting those same experiences and you're also being challenged sort of intellectually and interpersonally to to connect those experiences with your life back home to see if there's ways that you can improve yourself or or make a difference in in the world and in your family and relationships and all those sorts of things. So that would be that's another adventure sport move that obviously some adventure does as well. And um, and I think for me though that's where the rubber really meets the road. So we we in my personal life, I meet plenty of people that are are much better in these outdoor sports than I am, and and that's really great. I think that's awesome. Uh, but there's also part of me that's like, well, are these are these endeavors you're doing are they making any difference in your life? And so, so there's that idea. So um, REI has and uh, EMS and some of these other uh, organizations that are retail outlets as well as um, sort of co-ops. They they also offer opportunities for people to get out. So there's plenty of ways to do it. I think it maybe is the hard part is just saying, am I in good enough shape? Do I have enough money for this? Is is it is it high enough on my list of priorities? Uh, I would say most middle class uh, Americans can afford some sort of experience like that if they just reprioritized a little bit. If in other words, they could afford it if it was important to them. Right. So I think the hard part is saying, uh, is it important and when I, when I think about how many people are actually spectators watching football games or watching the Olympics now or whatever the deal is, I, I just think to myself, well, that not that an indication of how much we want to sit and watch versus how much we want to get out and do? So, um, I mean, I'm a spectator too. I love watching the Olympics, and so I'm not degrading or, or putting down the idea that we're spectators. But I just wonder sometimes if we're maybe doing a little bit too much spectating and not enough participating. You know, I keep on with my kids. I say it over and over and over again, and, and I keep hoping the message gets through. And we're a very active family. We do adventure sports of, of all sorts of different kinds together, and it's been, it's been one of the greatest joys in my life to, to do these things with my kids. But I always tell them, move first. Yeah. You know, and if, you, if you're going to sit down and be entertained by television or YouTube or whatever it is, 
then you got to make sure you've taken care of your responsibilities and your priorities and you've moved first. Yeah. Then maybe, you know, maybe in the evening, okay, sit down for an hour and you go, oh, I'm going to veg out before bed, but don't let that suck you in. You know, it's not a lifestyle. You just can't, you can't spend a life watching other people pretend to have fun. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So I, interestingly, I think I have a 19 year old and a 24 year old as well. And my 19 year old, he was with me. We were doing this, uh, this, um, uh, he had to do a little bit of work volunteering with this organization. So we had to camp out and he was so frustrated with the camping out cause he'd done so much of that in his life. He's now recanted that. But when he was 16, he got out of the tent and he was really upset cause he hadn't slept that well that night. And he said, you know, dad, that's it. I am officially retiring from camping. I am done with this. <laughs> Just, Just like talking. grandpa. Yeah. Yeah. It was really funny. Now he's gotten, he's since recanted and he's back into it, but he, he needed a break, I think. So, um, maybe I may have, I may have camped a little bit too much with him. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That's fun. So I'm going to read the first line here on your website. Welcome to Summit Adventure. It says at Summit Adventure, we use experiential education, adventure programming, service, and cross-cultural immersion as a tool to move individuals and groups out of their comfort zones into more reliance on God and each other. So that that's a lot of words. <laughs> Could you kind of unpack that for us? <laughs> uh, well, you know, we, we talked about it a little bit as we go, um, but uh, maybe, maybe um, unpacking it is focusing on some of the major issues. And one would be just saying um, we all need a challenge, right? So, uh, and that the, the more that that challenge has different parts to it, the better it is. So in other words, it's more than just a physical challenge. It's more than just um, uh, a religious challenge. It's more than just a a sharing challenge. But if it has all those components mixed in, then there's a a great opportunity for people to grow and change. And um, unless there's a bunch of people out there that think that they don't need to grow and change, very frankly, I'm not sure I've ever heard anyone say that, um, then that's what they need, right? That's what I need. I, I've been doing this for 35 years. I still need to go out and get physically, emotionally, spiritually, um, intellectually challenged. And if I can do it all in the same experience, that's even better. Then I don't have to have my life segmented into, oh, here I'm doing an intellectual, an intellectual challenge. I'm getting a degree. Here I'm doing an intellectual, um, an interpersonal challenge. I'm getting married. Here, you know, whatever the, however you could segment these things. So that's what Summit tries to do is, is, come up with experiences for people that are integrated. Mm. And then just kind of to give people a little bit of a, a feel for what we're talking about here, that the last line of the same paragraph, every course is different, but typical courses include backpacking, rock climbing, mountaineering, rappelling, orienteering, trekking, cultural immersion, and service. Yeah. And the, and probably the, all the things that you described, you stated there, except for the last two things, the cultural, the immersion and service. Um, we've been, we find at summit that a lot of people are really have done some of those adventure things. They've been to a climbing wall or they, they went to co- went with their college group somewhere in an outing or whatever. So they still want to do that stuff. Um, but the thing that's appealing to them is the cross-cultural immersion immersion, meaning you just sort of throw them into something that they are not used to. And that could be being down in Watts in LA, uh, could be down in Ecuador in a primarily Spanish speaking, um, developing world country, uh, could be all sorts of things, inner city Fresno. Uh, so you throw me in inner city Fresno and I am going to be immersed in a cross-cultural setting that is going to be very uncomfortable for me. So we try to pick those things out. 
uh, and get people to do that. And then along the way, um, when they're in those sorts of environments, we, we want service to be sort of the response to that, right? So to, to quote Martin Luther King Jr., right, service is the rent we pay for living. So, ah, good. Um, so we, we try to bring those things in. And again, it's, those are illustrations of wanting experiences to be integrated and holistic and um, involving challenge and physicality and um, emotionality and all the things that go into that, but also being in environments that aren't always wilderness-oriented, right? So that's where some of our courses go to different places that not just involve wilderness or backpacking, but they also involve an element that um, that is, uh, yeah, I would say cross-cultural. It's probably a good way to put it. Huh. So you kind of have a, a three-tiered program. You said you had a spring and fall semester college program where participants can get um, credits for college level credits, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. You have a summer program, which is you, you mentioned is similar to the, the outward bound program that you already talked about. Right. Um, and then you have the international courses, Ecuador, Israel, places like that where you go. Describe Correct. those for us. Yeah, the uh, the international courses came as a byproduct of of wanting to be wanting to have college students immersed in uh, sort of a study abroad with an academic slant. So uh, we went down to Ecuador and reconned that area for the high mountains and the service opportunities that we had and decided that uh, not only was that a great place for uh, college students to go, and it turns out it has been, but it was also a great place for uh, for adults and uh, high school kids and then also college students that weren't taking it for a semester program. They just wanted to go serve somewhere or be immersed in a, a foreign culture, cross-cultural um, experience for the duration of a spring break, let's say, or sometimes for a January term or however they, whatever they have at their college. Um, so yeah, that uh, we, we started with Ecuador and then had an opportunity. Uh, it was a circumstantial thing, but had an opportunity to go to Israel and uh, that, as as most of us know, is fraught with controversy, and and it has been right. It's also fraught with people calling, going, "Is it really safe to go over there?" So um, there there was a, the development of a thing called the Jesus Trail, which went from Nazareth in northern Israel uh, over to Capernaum uh, by the Sea of Galilee. So uh, that was. Um, uh, the start of a trail that they think Jesus took as he went from his home place to where he ended up working and serving the last days of his life. Um, and so they, it has caught on. There's, it's not just necessarily a Christian trail by any stretch. So just people interested in history or um, there's plenty of folks that have hiked that trail. It's a 65 kilometer trail. It's relatively easy hiking. And we, we picked up on the whole Israel idea as as a way to maybe tone down how physically difficult some of our courses are for for folks that maybe weren't didn't think they were that physically fit, and um, and then also we we really liked it for the spiritual pilgrimage that going to Israel is for a lot of people. I mean, the three major monotheistic religions are housed within a couple of feet of each other in Jerusalem. So. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, that Israel course in particular, uh, had certain elements that, that were really distinctively summit. So the 65 kilometer hike, uh, and we went through various towns, right. And stayed at, um, Jewish settlements and then also Islamic places. And it was sort of crazy that way. And then what really made it wild was, uh, we did some service in the West bank at, um, uh, at the farm of a Palestinian Christian. And so that, 
that added to me that was like summit personified right it was it wasn't sort of a sticks and stones tour then there's a lot of those and those are those are certainly fine things to go to israel for but it wasn't get on a bus get off the bus look at this thing get back on the bus right. um, it was you got to walk around you got to carry a pack oh and then by the way you're going to go into the west bank and um and if you're afraid that you're going to get bombed out there well that, that's just you're gonna have to be afraid of that so it was it was uh intriguing watching people go into the West Bank and stay in the stay overnight at the house of or on the farm of a Palestinian Christian and hear the stories of how there's there is the vast, vast, vast majority of Palestinians think that's horrific what Hamas and other th- other organizations have done to innocent Jews and people around the world. And so um, that bring, brings that whole intellectual challenge uh, for me and for Summit into the into the forefront, right? Because you got to really deal with preconceived ideas about Palestinians, about Israelis, about all, all kinds of things. And then you got to be able to get through checkpoints as an American, knowing that um, if you if you say something that you think is funny and they don't like that, they can shoot you. And um, and that's, you know, that's sort of a, a wake-up call to, wow, there's some things around the world that are quite a bit different than what I'm used to. So, and it all goes into the mix of carrying a pack and getting up to Nazareth to hike on the Jesus Trail. <laughs> Wow. So yeah, it's uh you know that's that that is uh we went over there for three or four courses uh, and probably go back try to go back this spring. They've actually completed a backpacking trail around the Sea of Galilee, so sort of interested in seeing what that's like. But uh, again, I, I describe a little bit more detail about the Israel course because I think it's um, sort of epitomizes what Summit's trying to do. We have a we have a certain way of approaching life, and um, you know it involves. Involves some sweat and some uh, pretty intense reflection, and maybe sort of edging, working the edges off of each other, and uh, really asking hard questions of one another, and and being in situations where doing service on a Palestinian uh, farm is is as big a wake up call as the sixty minutes episode that they were filming there at the time that we were one of the times that we were there. Mm. So anyway, yeah, it's uh, it, the international courses involve a lot of service, a lot of uh, a lot of immersion into cultures that we are most of us are unfamiliar with, whether that's speaking Spanish or understanding um, sort of the whole thousands of years of of conflict over in the Middle East. All those things go into the mix. Wow, it, just a, a real challenge to stereotypes and worldviews, and making people step back and rethink. You know? Yeah, and and it's not based on le- it's not the not some lecture I did on a bus, right? It's it's uh, just all I had to do was as we're standing next to the wall, right, that separates um, the West Bank from Jerusalem, and it's a thirty foot high concrete wall, and it's about ten feet thick, and um, I asked the one of the people that lived there who built the wall. I mean, it's got to cost billions and billions of dollars, and and they said, well, um, Jews from both Israel and around the world have helped fund that, and uh, American Christians are the second the second highest funder of this wall. And so that's a you know you uh, probably people listening to this thing go yeah that's good we need to have the wall and other people would be would say that's horrible and it's it, it, at the very least you could say it's ridiculously controversial. Oh yeah. And and there's probably not a single human being alive that understands the full breadth of the whole thing. But what what happens standing next to it is you have to start. I think you have to start asking questions. I mean, nobody's. I didn't lecture on it. Nobody. We didn't bring any some special special um, Jewish interpreter on the wall or anything. You just stood there and just. I think most people like myself were just 
absolutely overwhelmed by a 30-foot high, 10-foot thick concrete wall. Because huh. you just don't stand next to those generally in the United States. Yeah. And I mean, think about the, the huge impact that the world experienced when Reagan stood up and said, Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I mean, didn't we have a wall that we tried to tear down? And then we're building new ones. Yeah, and you know, so then you come back and you're, and so I don't want to get, you know, super political, but you know, there's big controversies about should walls be built to keep uh, immigrants out. Yeah, well, if you just stood next to the, the big wall uh, on the West Bank, surely that's going to influence something you have to say about immigrants coming in. Yeah, life experiences, memories, shaping, hmm, fascinating stuff. Yeah. And the thing and the thing that makes it so challenging is uh, everyone's got their they've got their own opinions, their own backgrounds, how they approach it all. Um, and then, of course, the emotions of the human condition. And um, so I think one of the things that I've liked about this sort of career is that you start with the adventure and the challenge. And that's what initially draws people is they want to do the 65 kilometer hike or they want to climb Mount Rainier or they want to they want to backpack for 21 days in the high Sierra. And then but then they sort of get they sort of get surprised by the depth of, um, uh, of, of the experience relating to each other, doing it together. Yeah. So as one, as, as I used to hear all the time when we went down to Ecuador with Johns Hopkins university students who are some of the most intensely academic college students on the face of the earth. Um, they, they would tell us right flat out, well, first of all, we don't really want to go with a, a faith-based organization, but I guess we can go with you guys, right? So we'll sort of give that to you. Just don't hammer anything down our throats. And we're like, okay, we'll just go down there. That's fine. And, um, and, and they said, and secondly, we only want to go there to climb big mountains, uh, because you know, we're, we're high, strong academics. And so we, we just do things that are superlative so we can tell our friends that we climb. Higher. <laughs> okay. And then, and so those are the two things you're going there for. And we, I guess we'll tolerate your service. I mean, I would, I heard Johns Hopkins students say that to my face. I don't know how many times. And I'd be like, okay, fine. That's fine. And then we get down there and they hang out at, for example, I remember one Johns Hopkins kid, you know, a future engineer. And we went to the Quito, uh, which is the, um, the largest city in Ecuador. Uh, we went to the Quito dump. And they, at that point in time, they had four to 600 people living in the dump in essentially pieces of cardboard that they had somehow strung together and, and they sort of called it a house. And so they were playing soccer with these kids that were that ranged in age from out of probably about 11 to 14. And the first thing I noticed about these kids playing soccer was that none of them had on a matching pair of shoes. So they just went through the garbage at the dump that they lived at and they just grabbed a left shoe and a right shoe and then they tried to play soccer with that. And the second thing that I noticed was that um, they were all emaciated and they all were malnourished. And the third thing I noticed was that they were all, without a doubt, clearly outplaying every single Johns Hopkins student, including kids that were on the Johns Hopkins or college soccer teams. Wow. So, uh, and they, of course, they recognize that, right? And there was, a, I remember there was a kid standing there, Johns Hopkins kid was just watching. He didn't want to play in the soccer game. And I walked up to him and I said, um, I said, hey, what do you think about all this? And he was crying. I mean, I walked up. I walked up to him from behind, and I didn't notice till I was standing next to him because he he didn't respond to me when I said, "Hey, what do you think of all this?" Nothing. He didn't say anything at first, and I finally looked over at him, and tears were flowing down his cheeks. And he said, "You know, I, I can't respond to anything right now." And um, so I, I gave him a day or two, and I came back up to him later, and I said, "Hey, got any thoughts about the dump?" And he said, "That was the most overwhelming experience of my entire life. I had never seen people in such poverty who who were still trying to." do life. 
Mm. You know, and it was a, that was a powerful experience for me and for him, right? It was powerful for me because it was so powerful for him. I mean, I'd seen it a bunch of times already, played soccer with the kids and sort of knew what was coming and, and it just literally overwhelmed him. So at the end of these Johns Hopkins courses, it probably happened at least 50% of the time. These kids would be like, you know, I, I came down here. They'd still be in Ecuador. We'd be talking about the courses. They were getting ready to leave. And they, they any number of kids would say, I came down here to climb big mountains. And uh, it only took me a couple of days to realize that what really matters is our people. Right. And, you know, if that's – if that does – that probably – maybe that sums up some adventure better than anything is – We'll get them down if we got to get them down there for the mountains, and they do the mountains, and that's important and impressive. But ultimately, uh, all those mountains and all the reflection and all that come back down to what are you going to do with people? You know, I think that if we spoke more generally, you know, like we were talking about at the beginning of the show, adventure sports do that. Yes, without you, a doubt. You know, you're you're going out because you think you're going to commune with nature, but what you end up doing is finding something out about yourself and about the, the people around you. Yes. Even when, you know, we have people go out on solo. And so even when they're sitting out there for 24 hours by themselves, when we ask them what were the most powerful experiences that you had during your solo, they almost always have something to do with someone else. And um, so they, they're out there. If they're not with somebody, they're thinking about someone. Mm. Fascinating. Well, it yeah. sounds like Summit Adventure offers some amazing opportunities for life-changing ex- experiences. I mean, that's that's what we've been talking about here. Yeah, that's you know that I think um, I see it happen so often, and um, the I think the the one frustration I have with being at Summit for so long, uh, and it was it was probably true at Outward Bound as well, although I was younger then, is I just wish there was a way you could communicate that to people um, so that they would sort of jump at that chance because. I mean, think about it. You're gonna how are you gonna tell somebody like um, just to win, as you're talking to them in a coffee shop or whatever? Hey, you know what you really need to do? You need to put a 50 pound pack on. You need to sweat bullets, and you need to be so hungry you can hardly see straight. And then you need to not be angry enough at your fellow compadres who just turned you down the wrong trail. And now you're gonna take another two hours before you eat. And that's gonna be one of the best things that's ever happened to you. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, right. <laughs> Who's gonna sign up for that? You know, they're just gonna be like, really? So it takes it takes other people that go uh, that have gone and um, you know and they and we try to get people that have been on courses to you know make sure they do the best job they can tell other people. But I, what would it be like if I don't know if if all of us in the U.S. had regular experiences like that? I mean, what would, how much more compassionate would we be? How much more forgiving and loving and accepting would we be if we just got pushed to our own limits and we know we got a ton of them rather than we just operate out of our comfort zones and just go yeah whatever. I don't need I don't need to deal with so and so I can just leave I can move on, so mm-hmm. so that's that that's what I I hope uh, you know if people hear this and um, my my request or hope or whatever dream is that just more people do it and uh, and uh, and get pushed and and go wow there's some things inside me that I hadn't experienced for a long time or those things I said to other people or things that I felt that wow that those are powerful things I need to do more with that. Wow, well Tom that's. It- I don't know what to say. It's awesome. It sounds like the the real reason behind why I wanted to do the Adventure Sports Podcast. It was because I wanted people to experience life in in a new and fresh way. And, you know, we, we hand out stickers all the place that say, find your adventure, enlarge your life. Yeah, awesome. 
You know, and that it sounds like that's pretty self-centered, but the reality is when you in, are doing your adventures and enlarging your life, it's it's about others. You know, yeah. that, that's where it ends up. And even if, you know, and even if some people are listening and they're thinking, oh, okay, okay that's great, blah, blah, but which, which is fine. And they maybe don't get uh, ignited just for themselves. Your story about your 14-year-old, that, that story is inspiring me to go take my 10-year-old out and just go for a hike right now. You know, oh, it's yeah. like, it's like, so think about it even in the context of families, because I'm assuming uh, folks that are listening to this thing, a lot of people have families, right? So you don't necessarily have to go climb Mount Rainier. You don't have to make it this thing that's just so overwhelming, you can't even do it. Just go out for a hike, right? And then try to make it a little bit challenging and see what happens. And um, and it's hard to imagine kids going, ah, oh, dad, I didn't really enjoy that real challenge we had together. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, so, uh, I think we could talk for hours about this stuff, but believe it or not, we're running out of time. Will you wrap it up for us by telling us what inspires you? What you're doing is a lot of work. You know, what inspires you and gets you up in the morning? Um, I think it, you know, we've been sort of ta- alluding to it or, or saying it directly the whole, the whole podcast, but uh, I think the reality is just thinking that uh, if I get up, there are challenges ahead that, that I need to undertake for myself and I need to try to encourage other people to undertake because I think the idea of just remaining static is there, – there's something about that that is both pathetic sounding to me and uh, hopelessly – well, just hopeless. Maybe that's, a, maybe that's where I'll leave it. So I, I wake up in the morning having hope that I'll be, I'll be faster, stronger, different – more malleable, more compassionate today than I was yesterday, and that um, anything that I that my lifestyle and my, the work that I do will help other people to to be the same, so that we don't just wake up the same as we were the day before. Mm, very well said. I've heard people say you can look at every day, and you're either going to get stronger that day or weaker, but there's no break even. Yeah, I think that's probably true because maybe that's how maybe that's ultimately is what I'm afraid of is oh, if I don't get stronger today, I'm going to get weaker and. <laughs> Again, the stronger is not necessarily the physical strength. I mean, that, maybe that's part of it, but it's also stronger that I go confront somebody that I really should have confronted in, uh, yesterday, and I didn't do that, but I'm going to do it today, and it's, it's going to be difficult, but it's going to make them better as well. Wow. Well, Tom, tell us again. If people want to learn more about Summit Adventure, how can they find you? Yeah, it's, uh, it's on the website. It's www.summitadventure.com. Um, I also I can't resist this plug, but I did write a book that uh, that sort of alludes in great detail to some of the stuff. It's a it's a book about my three children and the quotes that they have said over the years that I somehow kept track of, and a lot of them have to do with being on adventure scenarios and also dealing with the difficulties of life. But it's hard it's hard not to read that book and uh, and just go wow I, I gotta somehow keep doing this sort of adventure thing. And that, that book is called Hold Mine Hand. So it's not a grammatical error. It's what my uh, two-year-old, who's now 20, said to his older brother when he fell off the porch. He said, Justin, hold mine hand. And I just thought it was a cute quote, but I started recording all the things they said over the years. And I ended up with three or 400 of them and I turned into a book. And anyway, it's, a, it's another look at how adventure um, and adventure sports, as because that was such a big part of our life, has shaped their lives and maybe could encourage other people to shape theirs oh i love it hold mine hand we'll put that in the show notes okay great that'd be awesome yeah so if you're driving down the road right now and you're afraid you're going to forget that you can remember you were listening to the adventure sports podcast so just go to our website and that'll be there and uh wow tom thank you so much for your time today man i'm inspired i really enjoyed our visit 
Yes, me too. It was great. I uh, like I said, I enjoyed your Holy Cross um, story, and uh, gets me to think about that as well. And uh, I was, it was uh, definitely a privilege and pleasure to to be on the show. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, you bet. It's our pleasure, and and very cool. So for all of our listeners out there, wow! If if you're not inspired by what Tom had to say here, then maybe listen again. You will be. And in the meantime, until the next show, get out there and have some fun. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.